O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 is a famous psalm and it brings up an important question. What should we do with the name of God as revealed in Exodus? Whether it's in translation or the way we pronounce it in songs and to each other. What should we do? Some months ago, I sought to answer that question, but I realized I needed a lot more research. So here's another start to this important topic. This is going to span multiple episodes. It's going to be extremely interesting. So I hope you're ready. This is Working for the Word. My name is Andrew Case. Here we go. try to answer two primary questions. Number one, would it be better for translations of the Hebrew Bible to use some approximation of Yahweh or a title like the Lord? Number two, when teaching and reading Hebrew today outside of Israel, would it be better to pronounce his name as some approximation like Yahweh or say Adonai, which is Lord in Hebrew? I want to begin by reading a really great quote by David Kleins. He says, The personal name of God is Yahweh. It is a foreign name, quite un-English, and so unlike the good Anglo-Saxon word God. For that reason, if perhaps for no other, the name Yahweh must be preserved, lest it should ever be imagined that God is an Englishman. He is a foreigner to every race on earth. The very awkwardness of addressing a God whose name is not native to one's language in itself alerts us to the alienness of Yahweh to every God created in our own image. Personally, for me, growing up, I understood that the name of God was the Lord. And as I got older, at some point, I began to understand that When I saw the Lord in caps, that meant that it was the special divine name of God revealed to Moses. Now, this seemed strange and confusing to me, adding a level of complexity to understanding a Bible that was already difficult enough for a teenager to understand. So I don't remember when it was that I first heard the name Yahweh pronounced, but when I went to seminary, I quickly realized that it was an accepted pronunciation, and spelling for God's name, especially in academic circles. I saw that commentaries used it regularly, and professors assured me that it was the most reasonable approximation of the way it was originally pronounced. Now, interestingly, most of what I learned about the divine name was in passing during seminary. There wasn't a course dedicated to it, And there was no class that devoted an entire hour to discuss it. And there was no book recommended or required on the topic in any of my courses. So that fact now saddens me because as I dig deeper into this issue, I realize that there is far more than enough to construct an entire course around the name of God, most of which I was never taught in seminary. 
Now, to give you some background, this study arose because as my wife and I began creating the Aleph with Beth channel on YouTube, which is a video course that teaches Hebrew through comprehensible input, we came to the point where we realized that we needed to introduce the divine name. So we had to decide how we'd pronounce it in the videos. Also, as a translation consultant, this is an important issue to grasp in order to adequately advise translation teams. So this paper is an opportunity to explore this vast field of study. We also want to evaluate the evidence, and I want to articulate the position that we've arrived at, as well as help and encourage others to reevaluate preconceptions that they may have. Now, in his book on ancient Near Eastern worldview, John Walton writes, Ancient cultures considered something to exist when it had a name and a function. The name is the God's identity and frames the God's existence, end quote. Now, it could be argued that in modern cultures, we are very much the same way. In the West, for example, we're obsessed with having special names for everything, from sicknesses to psychological conditions to personality types. So our impulse to name things and people is prominent across cultures today. This reality highlights the importance of careful and meticulous deliberation when we talk about translating and pronouncing God's name. Now, before we look at historical evidence outside the Bible, it's really, really, really important to frame everything by what we know from Scripture. Unfortunately, in the millions of books that have been written on the divine name, this is kind of an afterthought in many of them. And a lot of what I found in my research, I did not find in other books, especially in this part. So here we go. Let's look first at the main text in this whole issue, which is Exodus 3.15. And we're going to discuss more about it later, but let's get started with this. It says, God speaking to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So in Hebrew, the last sentence reads, Ze shmi le'olam v'ze zichri le'dor dor. So literally, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial slash remembrance slash mention to generation, generation. So that's a very literal wooden translation. Now, some versions like the Net Bible and the KJV translate the word zichri as memorial. But the word in this context can be understood as implying the speaking of the name, since things that remain unspoken are usually lost in oral cultures. So, for this reason, the NIV translates it as follows. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. 
Now, if we look at holidays, Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, and we look at Zecher, we see that it can mean the mention of a name. An example is in Deuteronomy 32, 26, or the solemn naming or address of God. And it has the example of Exodus 3.15, where we're at. Now, in Isaiah 26, 8, God's name and mention or remembrance are paired together, hearkening back, I think, to Exodus 3.15. So this is what Isaiah 26, 8 says. O Yahweh, your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. This is from the ESV. So that last part, your name and remembrance, that's the same word, zecher, that's occurring in Exodus 3. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the opposite of this kind of remembrance is the grave, where Yahweh's name is not heard. So this is why the psalmist, after addressing Yahweh by name, says, for in death, There is no remembrance, same word, zecher, of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? This is Psalm 6.5. And you can also see the same thing happening in Ecclesiastes 9.5. Now, Hosea picks up on Exodus 3.15 as well when he writes, Yahweh, the God of hosts, Yahweh, is his memorial name. That's also ESV. So that's Hosea 12.5. Let me read it again. Yahweh, the God of hosts, Yahweh is his memorial name. Also, that word zecher occurring there. The psalmist also picks up the same theme in Psalm 135.13. So this is what he says there. Your name, O Yahweh, is everlasting. Your zecher, O Yahweh, your remembrance, throughout all generations. English versions can't seem to agree on a gloss for your remembrance in this verse. And so we have NASB saying your remembrance. We have KJV saying your memorial and NET, your reputation, NIV, your renown, NLT, your fame. So what's clear is that this verse is a restatement or summary of God's revelation of his name in Exodus. And it would be helpful to English readers, I think, to maintain the connection by translating Zecher consistently in both places, both in Psalm 135, 13 and other places, and then hearkening back to Exodus 3.15. Now, the seventh definition of Zachar, the verbal root of the noun Zecher in the BDB lexicon, is this. Remember, to remember, with implied mention of object. So with the implied mention, you've got to remember by mentioning. Implication there. Then they give an example of this from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. He says, If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, 
There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So that phrase, I will not mention him, for those who understand Hebrew, is this. Lo eskerenu. So you can hear in that the root, zachar, to remember or make mention of. So let's now listen to Peter Craigie's commentary on this verse. He says, As a result of the derision and mocking and the reproach in verses 7 and 8, Jeremiah had decided no longer to proclaim the word. The word zachar, here translated mention, most often means to remember, recall, or even commemorate. Certainly, Jeremiah is not proposing to disremember Yahweh, to forget, as do the people. In this instance, the verb must have the connotation of mentioning. That connotation fits well with the parallel half-line, refusing to speak in Yahweh's name. End quote. So, if we think about it here, Jeremiah's desire to stop speaking Yahweh's name is not this is important, not out of respect or reverence, nor is it because Jeremiah considered it taboo or ineffable. It's simply because he's tired of being persecuted for it. Now, before I go on here, I just want to give a disclaimer. There's going to be some technicalities in this whole presentation because I do want to appeal to some of the scholarly world in this, but I also want everyone else to be able to follow along. So I'm going to do my best to keep things on the lower shelf for everyone, but just be patient if you hear some things you don't understand or are over your head, okay? So let's let's go now to Exodus 23. Going back to Exodus, I want to read you another verse that's interesting here. Exodus 23:13, we see a form of this verb, zachar, which Hebraists called a hiphil form, used to prohibit the mentioning, and hence remembering, of the names of other gods. So listen to what it says. And the names of other gods you shall not mention. So there's the verb. Nor shall they be heard upon your lips. The NIV takes a different approach and translates it as, do not invoke the names of other gods, probably because it's obvious that Yahweh and the prophets themselves speak the names or titles of other gods throughout the Hebrew scriptures, but not with the purpose of invoking them. So the point of the verse is that God's name is the only one worthy to be on people's lips and thus remembered and made famous. And on the other hand, other gods aren't allowed to compete with him in this arena. Now, in the same vein, we see Joshua saying in Joshua 23, 7, he says, And the names of their gods you shall not mention. So, once again, we have this form of the verb zachar happening right here. The names of their gods you shall not mention, nor shall you swear by them, nor shall you serve them, nor shall you bow down to them. In other words, 
It's a unilateral agreement of silence when it comes to the names of the gods. And this is a way of forgetting and belittling them, right? This is something to help the Israelites avoid swearing by them and serving them. So the question then at this point becomes, by whose name then should they swear, right? Scripture actually speaks very clearly to this question in Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, It is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And again in Deuteronomy 10.20, in case we missed it, You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Jeremiah, as a faithful Torah student, also reiterates the importance of this. So hear what he has to say in Jeremiah 12, 16. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Now, this is a really, really cool thing. It's a surprising promise to restore the other nations along with Judah if they will learn the ways of Yahweh's people. So it's clear, it's really clear here that swearing by Yahweh's name constitutes an important mark of those who belong to and follow him. And conversely, it's clear that Yahweh places no value at all in avoiding the use of his name out of reverence or to avoid the risk of blasphemy. Consequently, to avoid using the name of Yahweh to make a vow would be to go against his explicit wishes. So maybe this whole thing is a little surprising to people because I feel like a lot of people have probably grown up thinking it's exactly the opposite. It's okay to swear by other gods and use their names for that kind of thing, but definitely not God's name. And that just goes to show how undeniably Western we have become and our culture has basically turned this on its head. And I think this is also due to a major neglect of the Old Testament in many circles. The Old Testament the Old Testament has tended to get the short end of the stick in modern Christian history. So now I want to take a look at some people in the Hebrew Bible who actually conform to Yahweh's desire that his name be used to swear or vow. Okay, and and as we heard in Jeremiah, one of the vows or the formulaic oaths is to use the phrase, as Yahweh lives. Okay, so listen for that in some of these. Boaz says to Ruth in Ruth 3.13, as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. So there's a good, a good Israelite doing what Yahweh wanted him to do and swearing using Yahweh as Yahweh lives to promise this to her. Now, then we see in 1 Samuel 14:45 where the people say to Saul, 
Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? I'll leave it to you to fill in the context. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story. Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As Yahweh lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. And then even Saul himself says to David in 1 Samuel 19, 6, As Yahweh lives, he shall not be put to death. This is in a totally different context. Elijah says in 1 Kings 17, 1, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then in 2 Chronicles 18.13, we have the prophet Micaiah saying, As Yahweh lives, what my God says, that I will speak. So I find in these examples that it's clear that righteous men like Boaz and Elijah swore by Yahweh's name. And I think it's also worth noting that righteous men also used the name in formulaic greetings. A guy named Nehemiah Gordon writes the following. Now, before I read what he wrote, I had to read some of what he said because of my research, but I want to just go ahead and give a warning to those who would be interested in looking at his YouTube videos or reading his books. I do not agree with the majority of his conclusions. He comes across as a very, very likable person and very excited about this topic. And a lot of people have followed his views, but I do not support his conclusions. So I just would caution you that his scholarship is a bit shoddy and he's not really answering a lot of big questions and big objections to his arguments and just misleading a lot of people in the way that he works through some of these things. But here's a little passage from his book that is useful. And he says, if it were forbidden to use the name, we would expect that the righteous men of ancient Israel, whose deeds are recorded in the Tanakh, would refrain from using it. Yet we find the name used repeatedly by the ancient Israelites. The name is even used in what can be described as casual contexts. Thus, Boaz and the Judahites of his day used the name of Yahweh as a greeting, as we read in Ruth 2.4, which says, Now Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to those harvesting, May Yahweh be with you. And they answered, May Yahweh bless you, end quote. So, although there's no real uniform agreement among commentators about how casual or formulaic this greeting was, the opinions are admittedly speculation. So, all we can do is speculate, but it is a fair speculation to say that this could have been a formulaic greeting. And nevertheless, it is an example of using God's name in a a somewhat casual greeting. So what's clear is that the divine name is being used in a non-religious context as a kind of greeting. And the context gives more weight to the idea that this was a standard greeting like good morning. And it also points to the fact 
that the name was not considered too sacred to pronounce in everyday interactions. So that's important. Another verse that seems to corroborate Boaz's greeting also comes from the time of the judges. So if we look at Judges 6.12, the messenger of Yahweh appears to Gideon. So some versions will say messenger of Yahweh. Some will say the angel of Yahweh. He appears to Gideon and says, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now this, as we will talk about later, was considered by many throughout the history of Jewish interpretation as a legitimate use of Yahweh's name in a greeting parallel to the one we see in Ruth. So that's really interesting. Once again, that's Judges 6.12 if you want to look at it. Now, how, here, here we get to the point where we have to ask, what happened? How did the Israelites go from swearing by Yahweh's name and using it in simple greetings to forbidding its use altogether and forgetting it? Now, I think God himself gives us a clue as to what might have motivated this historical change of attitude towards his name in the book of Amos. So It's kind of hidden away. We talked about this, uh, Carmen Joy Imes and I talked about this in a past episode, so you can go hear more about that there. But the book of Amos goes back at least to the 8th century B.C., And so I'm starting here because it represents the oldest, if it is evidence, then it represents the oldest evidence that might have caused the shift. So Amos warns the people of the coming exile and destruction that will punish their pride and oppression of the poor and needy. It's a serious book. It's a rough book. Read it out loud sometime with your family. It's very sobering. So as he describes the horrors of Yahweh's imminent judgment, he says something really interesting. Here's what he says in Amos 6.10. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no. Then he will go on to say, hush. We must not mention the name of Yahweh. Now, a guy named Douglas Stewart comments on the last part of the verse, and this is what he has to say. The point would seem to be that after the awful slaughter wrought by Yahweh, the few harried, terrified survivors will not be able to stand any further miseries and so will want to avoid mention of Yahweh. Once again, that's that verb, zachar. Since the speaker already uses Yahweh's name, the issue cannot be prohibition of mere oral formulation, but must concern calling on Yahweh in prayers of lamentation or the like. Yahweh will have become foe, not friend. Survivors will want him to stay away, not come back. Now, I would argue that there exists still, regardless of Stuart's commentary, a strong possibility that some Hebrews were so traumatized by what happened under Yahweh's judgment that they preferred simply not to talk about him anymore. 
This trauma could have easily developed into never mentioning his name for fear that they might somehow run the risk of falling under a similar judgment. This trauma-induced fear could have then evolved into the substitution of titles for God's name, which the Jews later labeled as a sign of quote-unquote reverence or respect. This idea of avoiding his name out of quote-unquote reverence, however, can't really be found evidenced in Scripture. It's instead described in later traditions. So that brings us to the intertestamental period. Now, during this period, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. As we know, we've talked about in this podcast a lot, the Septuagint. And an interesting thing happened in the translation of Leviticus 24.16. This is really fascinating. So listen to what the original Hebrew reads first for those who know Hebrew. V'nokev shem Yahweh mot yumat. So here's the translation of that. The one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. Now, the Greek, on the other hand, the Greek translation of this turned out rather different. Now, first, I'm going to read it in Greek for those who understand, so you can hear the weight of this, and then I'll read it in English. And just so you know, I use a Latin American Erasmian pronunciation of Greek because I've been teaching Greek in Spanish-speaking contexts for the last eight years, so bear with me. So here's what it says in Greek. Onomazon de to onomakuriyu thanato thanatusto. So that means the one who names the name of the Lord will surely be put to death. Notice the difference. So going back in Hebrew, it says the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. The Septuagint has the one who names the name of Yahweh, of the Lord. According to the Göttingen edition of Leviticus, there is no variant here. The manuscript tradition is pretty much unanimous that this was not an isolated case in the translation, but became the standard. So this is a kind of a smoking gun in this whole history of transmission of ideas about the divine name. In order to understand what may have happened, we've got to look carefully at the verb nokev in this verse. So once again, we're talking about Leviticus 24.16, and we've got to take into account relevant phrases in verses 11 and 15 of the same chapter, which read, respectively, The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. And then verse 15, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Now at this point, we're going to get a bit nerdy. So bear with me, stay with me, and then we're going to be done with this episode. According to the lexicon known as halot or halot, the verb nakav can mean, number one, to bore through. So once again, we're talking about this verb which is translated in most versions as blaspheme. 
So number one can be mean to bore through. Number two, to fix or establish. Number three, to denote, curse, or slander. And the last option, slander, is only attested in this chapter, Leviticus 24. While at the same time, the meaning to curse comes through clearly in Job 3.8 and Proverbs 11.26. Now, Dr. Carmen Joy Imes also provides helpful commentary on the use of nakav in her dissertation. So she writes, first, the Akkadian cognate nakabu is undoubtedly negative to deflower or rape. That's what it means. Second, verse 16 clearly employs the cal active participle of nakav, making its reappearance in verse 11 more probable. Most likely, nakav is euphemistic for open disparagement of Yahweh, since the unambiguously negative kalal is never paired directly with Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible. This may also explain the narrator's avoidance of the name Yahweh in his statement of the offense in verse 11 and 16. The meaning of nokev shem in the present context is clarified in verse 15. Nokev shem is blaspheming the name, which announces the oracular judgment based on this case, which is anyone who disparages his God is guilty. Now, I know that's a mouthful. Maybe I should have left it out, but it's done. Now, getting back to this, the LXX translators, all right, the Septuagint translators may have rendered Nakav in Leviticus 24.16 as to name for any of the following reasons. So let's break this down. Number one, in a spirit of piety, they could not bring themselves to translate curse or blaspheme or slander directly connected to the divine name. So they used circumlocution to generalize or soften the phrase. All right, so they were pious. They were too pious to say something so negative in their translation. Number two, they simply misunderstood the Hebrew verb. Number three, they allowed a belief about pronouncing the divine name to influence their translation. So maybe this tradition already existed of avoiding pronouncing the divine name, and so they let that influence their translation. So because of the Septuagint's huge, massive, strong influence on post-exilic Judaism and the early church, this reading may have led to the spreading, the proliferation of sentiments against the pronunciation of the name. If an anti-pronunciation belief was already prevalent during the time of the translation, then it may have served to strengthen that belief. We just don't know. This is admittedly speculation, but nevertheless, it's important to look at this piece of evidence. It needs to be mentioned and considered in our search for a reason for the tide turning against the pronunciation of the divine name. So I hope that's helpful. Anyway, we're going to wrap this up here because I'm sure your head is already spinning with too much information. (laughs) Thanks for spending some time over here at Working for the Word. I hope this was informative, edifying, interesting, 
please leave a review if you liked it. And here we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help you treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and become like the man of Psalm 1.